Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Philippians 3, 1 through 6. And God's word says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. We'll stop there and pick this up uh, next week in the text, but let's uh, please be seated and let's pray and ask God to help us with these six verses this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. By your Holy Spirit's awesome power, help us to see Jesus this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. About two months ago, my dad had some real issues. He's had some stuff down the years, but this was emergency room stuff. Calling and checking on him and everything, and, and it got sorted out, and I was talking to him later, a couple weeks ago, and um, you just, as you get older, you start to think. It's about, you know, am I ready to meet my maker? We were talking, and he said, you know, I was in the emergency room there in Branson the same time as, and he gave some famous country singer who died. And I said, oh, I, I just saw the headlines on a couple of these national news services. He was a famous enough man that he died. I said, I didn't even read the article, and, and that was in Branson, huh? He said, yeah, emergency room, I was there, he was there. And I said, did you get his autograph before he died? And he said, what? <laughs> and then he remembered who he was talking to, and it wasn't a, a joke. It was a, a thing where his dad finally he said, you know what? He said, I hope he was ready to meet the Lord. And I thought about that famous man who died, whose name I recognized, who I remember from the 80s and, and part of movies. And I think John Travolta had a movie based on a place this guy owned down in Texas and all of that. And I remembered him. And, and uh, I thought, boy, I hope he was ready to know the Lord too and meet the Lord. But I can tell you what he didn't say when God asked that uh, famous question, Why should I let you into my heaven? He didn't say, hey, let me go back for a minute and get a couple of guitars I'll autograph and give you some memorabilia, and would that be good enough for me to get into heaven? He didn't say, well, I took some of my fame and some of what you gave me, and and I did some charity work. Is that good enough to get me into heaven? I did work hard with the gifts you gave me, and and, uh, people knew me, and, you know, I wasn't a bad guy. Can that get me into heaven? No. 
Uh, if that man, and I hope he, I, I'm, I'm with dad, I hope he knew the Lord and was ready. I hope he's in heaven and, and been worshiping the Lord for a couple months now. Because if not, he's, he's in hell and, and with, with no hope. And I hope he had the right answer. And we want to talk this morning about what is that answer. Because there is a time when each one of us, as an individual, will stand in front of God and give an account. Uh, God saves us individually as people. He puts us in churches. We get to come together and worship him. But we're not all going to go in mass and stand in front of God together. We're standing there, and it's you and God. It's me and God. Are you ready? What will you say? On what do you base your rightness with God, your fitness for heaven? We find this morning Paul writing in the middle of this letter that we've been in. It's one letter that he wrote. We don't know if he just sat down and said, give me my scroll and wrote it in one fell swoop, licked the envelope and handed it to Epaphroditus and said, get back there. We don't know if he took a couple of days to write it and correct some things. We don't know, but it is one letter. It's in the flow of the whole context of a letter. And we're at this part where he's talking to this church who he loves, and he's saying, here's a warning for you. Paul is addressing the question that I asked. What would be your response Does your approach to life reflect your answer to your preparation for the day that you individually stand in front of a holy God? And this is where we are in our text. And Paul is addressing this to the Philippian church. In so doing, this will help our thinking as we ponder this most important of questions. Two points this morning. First one, we'll see this in verses 1 through 3. Things people push us to do that won't help us in the day of the Lord. And the second, things we are tempted to do or lean on, that we are tempted to do or lean on, that won't help us in the day of the Lord. First of all, things that people push us to do that will not be of any help to us. Verses 1 through 3. Let's just take a a look again, especially at verses Two and three right now. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In a younger day, when I thought I was clever and cool and funny, I might have titled the sermon, Who Let the Dogs Out? What does he mean when he says, look out for the dogs? Look out for the dogs, he says. What does that mean when he says that? That's uh, that's interesting. Uh, It's the attack of the Judaizers. There are people that would follow Paul around. You see this in Acts. And they were okay with Christianity to a point, but they also wanted to add things uh, to people to do to say this is what's really going to make you right with God. Not the Jews. We're not talking about the Jewish people as a whole. We're talking about what uh, we know as from history and from Scripture as the Judaizers. We understand that Christianity and God's providence had its roots in the nation of Israel. God's Old Testament people were centered in the Jewish people. 
God said to Abraham, uh, this, is, this is foundational to our understanding of the church and who we are. God looked at Abraham and he called him out in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here it is, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We know there's something about Abram, about Abram's offspring, Abram who became Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had the children of Israel. And we see all through scripture the pointing to the the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus who would come, and Jews and Gentiles, all people, would be blessed in this one. Through Moses, through David, through the prophets, all the way to John the Baptist, and then Jesus, and we see God's covenantal plan of salvation unfold. This is why it's beautiful to read your Bibles. I'm in a dry place in my, my few, few weeks ago, I started this 15 minutes a day uh, in the morning, 15 minutes at night. And I'm not skipping around. I'm just straight, straight through the gut of, gut of things. And I was thinking, boy, if I had to be locked away in a prison somewhere and they said you could only get three pages of the Bible, um, I wouldn't want it to be necessarily where I am right now, three pages from the book of Numbers. But uh, if it was three pages from the book of Numbers and that's all I got, and that meant that you got some pages in Romans and, and, and all of that, I'd be, I'd be glad to give that up for you. And I would love and cherish those as God's word, which they are. Um, and you see God's hand through all of it. Love your Bibles. Love even the parts that are hard. Read your Bibles. Um, uh, take a little bit of extra time sometimes. People just mock uh, sometimes Leviticus. And I thought, oh, if I went on a talk show, how could I defend this passage? I would have to look at it and, and look and see. And, 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 and people can, can, can make light of, of God's word all the way through. But as you look at the Bible in its whole and you take its time, you see Jesus Christ even in all those tedium of, of count all the firstborn males in the tribe and there were this many and there were this many and these are the names of this many. Uh, that's God's word. And throughout, what we see is Jesus Christ springing from that. Love your Old Testament. I'll say it again. I, I say it frequently enough, but it's a good for us to know because uh, though we start with the New Testament and we see Jesus and we look back then in the Old and we see where Jesus was in that, um, some people need to be reminded of this again because they just skipped everything that's back there. So we say, the New Testament is in the Old concealed. The Old Testament is in the New revealed. And it is one book with 66 chapters. Sometimes we say 66 books, that's okay. Boy, I wouldn't fight anybody over that. But to understand your Bible as one book with 66 chapters. And all of it is there. And so what happened is God 
bring salvation to this group of people. Uh, I was I was happy to, to read and realize again that even in the old days, as part of God's church, as part of his people Israel, uh, they weren't just only Israelis in there. Uh, there's an incidence, and they, they were got into some trouble, but one was married to an Egyptian. One was married. There were people that God brought in even back then. There were people that were covenant people of Israel that were covenant breakers and left. They'd been circumcised, they'd had the mark, and they left. Um, uh, we're going to get into to more of that type of an understanding and idea later on in this sermon. But what we need to see and understand right here is that, uh, that, that because Christianity sprang out of this wonderful rootedness in our Old Testament scriptures, there were people that had a hard time letting go of the things that God said to let go of in the Old Testament. And there were people that wanted, though they were Christians, professing Christians at least, they wanted people to still be circumcised, which was the mark that God had on his people in the Old Testament. They still thought Christians that came to the Lord needed that circumcision in order to really be right with God. They were adding to the free gift of the gospel. We understand circumcision in the Old Testament and the parallels in covenant theology to baptism in the New Testament. We see that. I had the wonderful privilege of meeting with three Baptist-type pastors. We read through this covenant theology. It was good for them because I think one of them had a sneaking suspicion that our baptism of our infants was we were doing that in some way to save that baby. And he said, oh, I'm so glad I read what covenant theology is, and I can see now. He said, I don't agree with it, but I can see now why we baptize, and I see the parallels between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New. That's different than what these people were doing. These people were coming along and saying, you must be circumcised in order to really be a Christian. And Paul said, you've got to watch out for this. Jesus came, lived his sinless life, died as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, and the converts to Christianity, the saved people that were being gathered from Jewish and Gentile peoples around the world were gathered into these places called local churches, like what we do here. And they were part of the universal church church composed of Jews and Gentiles. Well, these Judaizers wanted that baptism. They wanted that circumcision, I should say. And Paul fought them all the way through. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord and look out for the dogs. Okay. Uh, The best way to understand what he's saying. So is he reduced to name calling? Well, there's name-calling all over the place. I almost don't even want to look at the news these days because depending on what perspective, name-calling, misrepresentation, uh, people at each other's throats, we can't do that. Paul, when he says look out for the dogs, is not name-calling as much as he is taking the way the perspective was uh, from the Israeli the Israelite community in those days. I put this quote in deliberately because sometimes people knock Jesus 
uh, also for talking to the Syrophoenician woman in the way that he did. Okay, so let me, let me gather this. Maybe you would even need to look at this in your worship folder today. Moises Silva said, to appreciate the force of verse 2, we need to realize that Paul's language is not accurately described with such terms as insulting or abusive. Paul has carefully chosen his terms to achieve intense irony, not merely to use derogatory speech. The very first item clearly illustrates our problem. For the pejorative sense of the English word dog is normally applied insultingly to people considered worthless and vulgar. We use versions of that in our language, and you should never use that to describe anyone. When Paul is saying dog here, he is, uh, well, let's, let's get back to Silva, he's, he's better off. For the Jews, however, the term had a distinctly religious sense. It referred to the Gentiles, those people who, being outside the covenant community, were considered ritually unclean. When Jesus drew a comparison between the Syrophoenician woman and dogs, that's in Mark 7.27, the woman recognized the analogy not as a vulgar insult, but as a religious statement. Paul, therefore, is making a startling point. The great reversal brought in by Christ means that it is the Judaizers who must be regarded as Gentiles. That's all that's going on. People go, well, Jesus called that woman a dog. Remember, she came to him and she said, uh, heal my daughter. And he said uh, something about you know, the dogs and the scraps on the table. And people say, oh, how can Jesus talk like that? There's a sin for sure. What a terrible Jesus that is. Well, the woman didn't say that, and that's why they could have this intellectual banter. She's smarter than we are. Uh, Read that text. She responded right, and they had this, and Jesus went ahead and healed that daughter. So when Paul says, beware of the dogs, he's saying, you guys from outside who think these Gentiles are outside it, you are the real outsiders. Dogs is a hard statement, not because it's dogs, it's not an insult. He's saying the legalists are the outsiders and they're not in the gospel. He says they're adding to it. He says, beware of the evildoers. Well, what's he talking about there? Same thing. Uh, They were evildoers. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He was an evildoer, but he wasn't saying, beware of me. He was talking in context of, of, of these people who are saying, you're sinless, uh, you're sinful people, you're evildoers, you have to be circumcised. He says, no, you are the real evildoers who add to the gospel. Are you with me? It's important to get this. We're all evildoers. The word placed where it is between dogs And those who mutilate the flesh is directed specifically at these people for the practice they are advocating. Beware of these dogs who who say you're outside. They are the outsiders. They say that you're evildoers who have to be circumcised. No, that's the evil, is adding anything to the gospel, a religious rite or ceremony. Don't add to the gospel. He says you got saved by Jesus alone. And it's evil to say you've got to be this kind of religion that we say. You've got to do this, you've got to do that, and then you'll be saved. 
You cannot add to salvation. And finally, uh, it's, a, it's a great, it's a classic. He says, those who mutilate the flesh. They would say, we're not mutilating the flesh. He says, we're talking about circumcision. We're talking about the mark that is on God's people. He goes, no, now and in the context you have it, it's nothing more than a mutilation of the flesh. That's all it is. He was equating these Judaizers even with the pagan rites that the Philippian Gentiles had been saved from where there was mutilation of the flesh. He says a religious mutilation of the flesh even based on, uh, on, on scriptures but wrongly applied is no different than whatever you did as lost people in your own ceremonies. He says you've got to be careful You were saved by the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is all that you need. Jesus Christ is sufficient. His sacrifice is sufficient. And you cannot save yourself by adding something to it. It would be like someone who says, you are not saved, you're not really a Christian, unless you go down to Candlewood Lake and are immersed as part of an uh, an act and immersed in baptism as an act you do to receive eternal life. And he almost made a joke when he said, they said, you're not saved unless you uh, are circumcised. He said, you're just mutilating the flesh. If somebody says that baptism is what saves you, immersion, I would say, you're just telling me to go jump in a lake. Be, be careful that people tell you to go jump in a lake. Uh, we're not saying that anything saves you apart from Jesus Christ's substitutionary death on your behalf. You cannot add. You cannot, you cannot make yourself more of a Christian than you are when Jesus saved you by dying on the cross for your sins. Not saying that those who biblically conclude that immersion is, is, the, is the better way of baptism are modern-day Judaizers. I'm not saying that. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. We found out that the baptismal works. We always wanted to get rid of the baptismal thing because we're a Presbyterian church. In the early days, I said, no, we can't get rid of it because we may not make it as a church and we need this building to be marketable in case some Baptists need to come along and buy it back. Now I'm glad it's working because, uh, because Anna's church, when they have their salvation and the believers follow in believers' baptism, uh, it's good to have the baptismal font there, the baptismal tank here. Um, and we're, we're fine with that. No dispute because Pastor Ye does not teach that you have to be immersed or you're not a Christian. That's an intramural debate and we're okay. We fight with people and we say you're wrong if they say you must be baptized or you are not a Christian. Okay? So the Judaizers. Here's other places where the Judaizers were addressed when when Paul said, be careful of the dogs, be careful of the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and does them. 
He says in Galatians, you're counting on being good. You're going to fulfill the law. You're going to be on the right side of American politics. Uh, You're counting on that? Well, you better be right in everything. As that little pastor who tried to train me always said, you're going to be dogmatic, be consistent. If you want to go the works route, uh, I feel sorry for you. You cannot do it. You cannot. Some people in here can be better than others. Uh, I'm sure. But you can't be perfect or anywhere close. And Paul said, if you're going to rely on the works of the law, you're under a curse. Because you're going to go that route, you've got to be perfect. You can't be. You're not. We know we're not. Galatians 5.3. Paul, writing to that church in Galatia. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If that's the route you want to go, uh, man, I, wouldn't. I would take the free grace. Take it. Humble yourself at the cross. Say, Jesus, thank you. Uh, take the freedom of grace. Galatians 6.13 For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they want you to be circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. Listen, we want to do good. We want to do right. But we know that the only thing that can save us is that Jesus did good and did right and was perfect. He was tempted like we are, yet without sin. And he went to be our substitute. Get to that cross. Find shelter and comfort in Jesus. And don't think that your being good gives you any merit with God for your salvation. Uh, It doesn't. It's almost like an insult. It's like Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the people he came to save, and you walk up and say, you know, I'm sorry this is happening to you. That looks really terrible. And the part I can't see, the part where where the wrath of the Father is poured out on you instead of your people. But you know what? I think I'll pass on your offer because it requires me to humble myself and I think I'm really pretty good and I think I'll just go my way and I can save myself. That's like spitting on him while he's there hanging on the cross. You don't lean on your good works. Whatever you define or society defines those good works to be. Genuine good works are done, but they're already they're done by people who are true believers. Let me give you some some uh, some passages about that, and then we'll move on. Second Corinthians nine eight, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You're going to do good works once He saves you. You can't help it. That's part of the deal. That's part of his saving of you. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Colossians 1.10 So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We get to do good things but they're not good things if you think you're doing them to save yourself. Those are evil, wicked things. And a church that teaches that is an evil, wicked church. They're dogs, they're evildoers, they mutilate the flesh. That's Paul's description of them. So 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Everything we know about that, it's God's grace that saves. Conclusion to this section, beware. He says that word beware three times. People who come in with something you have to do to really be right with God. And we could start listing some of those things. Some of the things people recommend in those areas are good things. But they're not saving things. Someone said, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's it. So, beware of the outsiders who try and put this religious thing on you and guilt trip you and bind your conscience and add and throw you into confusion and say, unless you do this, you're not really a Christian. But here's what I find about myself. (laughs) The biggest Judaizer I ever met, (laughs) well, look at him in the mirror. (laughs) Uh, We have this internal thing that does this. We hardly need outside help. Uh, uh, They they just come along and and say, jump, 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 and we jump, and maybe they push us, but sometimes we just jump even before they get to us. We can do this to ourselves. And Paul said, listen, here's some things that we can do to ourselves to put pressure on ourselves to save ourselves. Uh, and, And so this is point number two. Things we are tempted to do or to lean on that will not help us in the day of the Lord. And he lists some of those things. The first three things, even are things he didn't do. He was just born. Verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, and you can see the irony he's making here. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, listen what we call the lottery of birth. I just happen to be born really, really righteous. And he's saying that ironically. Circumcised on the eighth day. Well, so what? He was circumcised. He didn't, as an eight-day-old baby, say, hey, mom and dad, I thought about this. Please circumcise me. He was just caring. He just did what what the car did. Brian goes where the car seat goes. Brian, they, they put Brian in the car. Uh, they carry him. He's in the car. The car goes. They unstrap him. They carry him. Uh, Paul had nothing to do with it, but he says, boy, if I count on me being circumcised on the eighth day, that's like anybody saying, well, I think I can go to heaven because I was baptized as a baby. Don't lean on your baptism. Don't count on your baptism. If that's all you've got to count on, uh, you're on some shaky ground. Uh, I can say, make good on your baptism, but that baptism didn't save your soul. That baptism brought you into a covenant relationship uh, with with the family of God. But but, but don't go run off and be a covenant breaker on that. Uh, That's flimsy ground when you're standing in front of God. So I was baptized on the eighth day. He says, I was um, uh, of the tribe or of the people of Israel. Of the people of Israel. The modern day equivalent of that is, and what I'm warning you, don't lean on being born in a Christian home. 
Well, you should have seen my mom and dad. They were so godly. They read the Bible to me, and we had family devotions, and I was born in a Christian home, and boy, I went to church when I was a baby. I went all my life until I got a little older and found some reasons not to go, but I kind of—I never really felt that too angry about it. I was, you know what? That's not your, that's not your passport to heaven. Paul said, that's a good reason to brag and be happy about and be thankful if you have it. That doesn't save your soul. Be grateful if it's your story. And be grateful if it's from those Christian home roots that God chose to call you to himself. But you need to understand, if if God has a refrigerator in heaven with all the pictures on it, he never points to anybody's picture and says, that's my grandchild. That's his kid. God has no grandchildren. God has children. Saying my parents were Christians will not only get you a ticket to heaven, it might actually be one of your greatest sources of torment in hell as you sit and you think back to the gospel that was right there in front of you and you rejected Wow. Paul said, oh, if anybody can brag about himself doing something, I was baptized on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And I'm tempted to say here, you can't even say you were baptized as a Presbyterian and boast about that. Um, (laughs) Even if your church stayed true and all that stuff that we brag about ourselves and think we did or do, You have no claim based on your heritage. Went to my great uncle's funeral a decade and a half or so ago, grandpa's older brother. And uh, they said, now who are you? And so cousins were getting to know each other and all that stuff. And said, oh, you're a pastor. And the guy said, Boy, there's so many pastors in Orleans and Lee's line. There's no pastors in ours. And his dad said, shh, shh, shh. And it's like, well, there are a lot of pastors coming from my grandpa and my grandpa's youngest brother. Big whoop. Who cares? Is that what you're going to call on and say, there's a few pastors in in our family and they spread the gospel? Uh, Is that going to cut it with God when you stand and face God? No. No. Paul said, if anybody's got anything to boast about, it would be me, right? Baptized. Church all my life. Christian home. And then he says some other traits that he did that made him special. This is what he did with all of his righteousness. uh, That that he jokingly says or ironically says uh, that that should get him uh, right into heaven without having to, to, to wait at all. He says... A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I was a Pharisee. I was a standout. I rose to the religious ranks. I was good. I was a good guy. I rose to the top. My oldest daughter is a real Madrid fan. She likes a player. Well, she's in love with uh, with a Croatian player, but 
but there's a player on, on the Real Madrid team called Karim Benzema. And there was an old British announcer, and whenever Karim Benzema would kick a goal, he would say, the Karim rises to the top. <laughs> and he's talking about how we used to do on the farm, where we would get the milk straight from the farm, and the cream would rise to the top, and then we'd skim the cream off, we'd churn it in the butter. The cream rises to the top. Paul is saying here, I had such a righteous life, the Kareem rises to the top. I was top in my culture. I was good. And not only good, I was really good. I was a leader of the good. I was so good that I even persecuted the church and killed Christians before I became a Christian. My righteousness led me to be a murderer. I was that good. Under the law, I was blameless. And he needed Jesus. He was on his way to hell. He was an enemy of God because he was an enemy of Christ. And God knocked him down on the road and said, why are you persecuting me? Go proclaim Christ. And he realized that all that quote-unquote good stuff in culture was not that good. Oh, I've got my degree from such and such a place. Who cares? Who cares? Unless God puts you there uh, with a special calling to love and to be salt and light there and to see men and women come to Christ in that culture and God might have prepared you for that. But that in itself is zero. We see in the church this happens even today. Uh, The parable of Jesus that Jesus told about the wheat growing up with the tares or the weeds. And he says, just let them grow up together. But on that last day, there's going to be a sorting out and Christians are going to be here. And the weeds that grew up with them and tangled up with them and and climbed that pole, that bean pole with them, uh, that's going to be separated. That's going to be cast into the fire. Hanging out in a church, this church, any church, Hanging out in, this, in a church does not save your soul. Paul warns the Philippian Christians of this, and he says, I'm going to tell you the best way to avoid these external and internal temptations. I'm going to tell you what Christianity is and means. Understand that you as a Christian are the circumcision. You are already set apart by God. You are saved by God through Christ. He circumcised your heart. You're already a Christian. Don't despise your Christianity that he's given you and don't think you've got to add something to some resume to be more Christ-like. This old stinking world misinterprets Christianity all the time. And they think it's something about being good and what they interpret for you to be. You're not really being a Christian unless you blah, blah, blah. And we buy into that. Well, I'm going to add to my Christianity this or that political movement, this or that social movement, this or that thing, because I'm just bored with the idea that there's a God who would send Jesus to die and be, be my sacrificial atonement. That's old stuff. That's, that's kid stuff. That's my old parents. That's what they believe. I got to be a super whatever. Won't save your soul. It's a dangerous path. What did he say? 
He said, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Worship. Worship God by God's Spirit. We are the ones who glory in Christ Jesus. Please do not get bored with the gospel of Christ Jesus. It is all about the person and work of Christ. Don't get off that path. We are the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. We're the ones who have to keep coming back day and day. Yeah, we feel good about some of the stuff we do. God gives you a, a calling and he lets you do this and do that for his name. Boy, it's good to, it's good to do that. He's called somebody else to do something else. And maybe in your flesh you don't think that's as big of a deal. Maybe in God's eyes uh, <laughs> that's just as big of a deal and they fulfill that calling. Don't judge each other and don't put marks on things about our spirituality and don't think God's going to love us anymore because of those things. We are in Christ. Your sufficiency is in Christ. Your salvation is in Christ. It's all about Jesus and it's nothing else. That's what he says. We worship by the Spirit of God. We don't glory in the flesh and we look at Jesus Christ as our, as our giver of life. And then I thought, as we wrap this up, How does that verse 1 that he gives off as kind of a lead-off sentence, uh, verse 1, if you look in your Bibles, and the the humans go through the Bibles, some human went through and they put chapters and they divided chapters and verses and all that. The things that are intact are are the books themselves. Like they didn't say Luke belongs over in Acts or something like that. Those are intact. But they were written as scrolls. They didn't have little numbers on them. And then people come along and it's helpful. Not knocking this. But in your Bibles, sometimes they'll have like a paragraph and there'll be a human that'll have written a a summary of the paragraph you're about to read. People don't know what to do with with what we call chapter 3-1. They don't know if it goes before or or after. And so I'd probably say in about half of our Bibles, they they tack it on to the last and half of them it's here. Where Where does that fit? Let me read this verse. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things is no trouble for me and is safe to you. Rejoice in the Lord. I'm I'm saying it goes in the letter and it's right here. What do you do? You just stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at what other people are doing and saying. You rejoice in the Lord. You rejoice in the salvation God's given you. You find a way to be happy and rejoice in the Lord. Joy and rejoicing. We said at the start that that's all uh, throughout the letter of Philippians. Joy and rejoicing. So this morning, and I, I try, you know, it's like you, you want to look at the news, you want to follow this stuff, and yet I'm like, I don't want to look at the news because all it is, is is not good right now. Yet I need to look at this. I, I can't, we're not ostriches, as I, as I was talking to Ted this morning. I said, we're not ostriches. We can't just bury our head and pretend things don't go on. But this morning I said, I don't want to look at the news. I do. And I said, I'll just skim the headlines in case, you know, there's something everybody's going to talk about. Somebody got shot or something and, and all that. And, you know, one of the headlines on one of the news sites said, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. <laughs> said, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. That's not news. 17 minutes I clicked. And I watched and I listened and I, it was, that, that was the best news I could have gotten this morning, to be honest. It was some German, and I, and I told Laura I wasn't going to, I asked Laura this morning, I said, do you ever sing that? She goes, all the time. 
uh, and, and, and uh, with the Choral Society. Beethoven's Ode to Joy. We sing a, a version of that. Uh, we sing, you know, bells are ringing, hearts are singing. We have it in our blue book. That's not the words from the German version. Beethoven wrote this thing, and this was his ninth symphony. This is the fourth movement of his last symphony, and the tradition says he was deaf, and he kept even conducting. It was his first time to appear in public in eight or nine years, and people threw their coats and all that to let him know the music was over and that they loved his music. And, and I, I've heard it said that they turned his head so he could see people because he composed this thing as a deaf man. Well, all of that's interesting. What I saw this morning, and I said, there is a sermon illustration, and I left my notes blank for this sermon. I said, something will come. God, please help something come to, to tie this together to really illustrate joy and rejoicing. And if you could have seen all of these musicians down here, all with their little tuxedos on and their gowns on, all the singers up here, and there's four principal roles but the whole chorus going, and they just filmed, it was just the 17 minutes of the last, Ode to Joy. What stood out to me was the conductor who had his back to the audience, but we could see it because of the way they were filming it. The absolute joy that this conductor had. I said, who is it? Is that Herbert Von Karajan? It was Herbert somebody. If it wasn't Von Karajan, it was Herbert. And he's directing, and he's singing along and the smile on his face, and his fingers are wiggling as he's, as he's motion, and, and he loves this, and it is joyous, and it's joyful. Some of the people in there are serious looking as they sing, they have a serious look, and they're going to make it right. Uh, you have to imagine the joy, but they, they don't look unhappy. Some of them are singing with smiles on their faces. The musicians are following along, and everything is there, and when it's done, you say, what a, what a, what a deal, what a... <laughs> the, the, the direct, their conductor is either, uh, he's either the best actor I've ever seen or he really is enjoying this. And it made me look up and say, what is it that they're singing in German? What are these words? And at the end of the words, it says, brothers, above the starry canopy, there must dwell a loving father. Do you fall in worship, you millions? World, do you know your creator? Seek him in the heavens. Above the stars must he dwell. And there is a joyousness, not even saying, I don't know about Beethoven's walk with God, I don't know about the, but I'm saying all truth is God's truth. And there is a joyousness when you look and you see a great God. And that is what Paul is telling his church to be. Rejoice in the Lord. You together, called apart. Some of you are musicians who play this instrument. Some of you are singers who sing alto or tenor or whatever. But we're all called together, set apart, to bring joy and glory to God in harmony. And Paul is saying, listen, you, beware of these people who are going to put a load on you. Didn't you run from the load? Didn't God save you from the load? Aren't you free to not have to do this extra garbage to be right with God. Don't you see? Jesus is, is your Savior, and it's free, and it's grace. Now get together and rejoice and sing as a church. And it's beautiful to be a Christian and to be an individual who's part of a Christian church. And that's what Paul is saying here, and we're going to pick this up more next week. For you to take it this week, just say, God, here, here's, here's what I want you to do. Limit your news intake. 
when you do watch it? There's a right and a wrong going on in the world. I'm not saying everything that's out there is, is all, it's all equivalent, moral equivalent. It's all this or it's all that. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you can get trapped even in righteousness, quote unquote. And it's not, when you do look at it, pick out the angriest face you see, anger about something. And say, God, I pray that that man or that woman comes to to know you. Whatever's there in that past that they have to be so angry about. Uh, And Lord, keep me from falling into that same trap. I want to rejoice with God's people. And I want to love all people in the earth. And I want all of those people uh, who are made in the image of God to not only just live, but to live uh, and become Christians and, and see Jesus the way he is. And that's what I'm going to dedicate my life to. And I'm going to be happy. And I'm going to rejoice in the Lord while I do it. That's what we need to do. That's what I want you to do. Uh, that's what I encourage you to do. Yeah, it may get worse. It's going to get worse. <laughs> you know, it's going to get... It, it, you ain't seen nothing yet. History rises and falls. There's this place called heaven. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Man, us old-timers who've made a gazillion mistakes, we might have some good wisdom, and we might have some, some motivation to help some of you youngsters with your young kids that haven't made the mistakes yet. Maybe there's a way we can help you and love you, and, and promote the cause of Christ while we do that. Uh, we're going to stick together, and we're going to be happy with our smiling uh, conductor, our director, Jesus, and, and we get to do something that the world only dreams of. We get to rejoice. And Paul said, here's how, here's how we wrap it up. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. It's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Hey, do the safe thing. Rejoice in the Lord together. Let's pray. God, thank you for this portion of this letter to the Philippians. Help us as your people. Help us to help each other and enjoy each other. Lord, help us to even recognize in each other when the danger comes and we're trying to put something on to to make us into super Christians that will make us more acceptable in your sight uh, than the gospel itself. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is all in all, that Jesus is sufficient, that it's Jesus plus nothing. And it's in that Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.